I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturepedic.com. That's naturepedic.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Parent Talk, Managing the Challenges of Daily Parenting. Today, we're going to talk about the big bang of consciousness. The whole idea is to reframe the terrible twos. So what do we mean by consciousness in this setting? Even at birth, a baby is aware of being touched. Baby is aware of getting hungry, of being unhappy. There's consciousness of bodily function at a certain level, but that's not the consciousness we're going to be talking about today. I think most parents who have a newborn will understand that there isn't even a conscious separation between the parent and the newborn, especially the mother who just gave birth and the newborn. It's like, where does the mother end and where does the newborn begin? And that's why those babies' needs are just so primal, because they almost feel like the mother's needs. I mean, they it, it goes in like a cycle and a circle. And that sort of consciousness is sort of beautiful, or that lack of consciousness or its separation is really beautiful. But what we're going to talk about today is what happens as that child gets out of the newborn stage, right, and moves into the mobile stage. And really, their brain is developing to a point where a very different type of consciousness appears. Not only is the child fully aware that they are separate from their parent, but, and this is the big bang of consciousness, they are aware that there are alternatives to their present state that exist in the world. That sounds like very like, what the heck is she talking about? But we're going to give you some really concrete examples, aren't we, Arthur? Absolutely, Susan. And you put it so well. I think we give two examples here. And the two examples are a six-month-old and a two-year-old. So think about a six-month-old who's starting to eat solids and you give them some, let's say, sweet potatoes. There's almost no six-month-old who can possibly imagine that they'd rather have carrots. Now, they may not like the sweet potatoes, but there's no six-month-old that even thinks about asking you, where are the carrots? <laughs> but the two-year-old, if you give them Cheerios, might throw a fit and look at you like you're absolutely crazy. How dare you give them Cheerios when it's obvious they want kicks? And what makes it complicated is the two-year-old may have no idea why they don't like the Cheerios. They may not know that the, they really want his kicks. They just are aware that they don't like the situation. So they're consciously aware that the situation can be different. Again, the six-month-old is conscious, but they're not aware that their situation can be different. As you put it so well, Susan, they're not aware of any alternatives. They just know what is. I have another example. Let's think about when a child is separated from their parent at six months old. Hmm. You get stranger anxiety, six, seven, eight, nine months. That you're, that's really when you're really seeing it. When a child, a baby says, whoa, not the mama, not the papa, <laughs> you know, not the person that I really need. And they start to scream. But the mother or the father may leave the child with a caregiver. And all that child knows is that this is not what I'm used to. And they're going to be pretty vocal about it, or they could be pretty vocal. Now, if you just fast forward, even as young as 15 and 18 months old, and a parent leaves a child at a daycare center or with a caregiver, 
And now the child is objecting. It sounds the same, but it's really got a very different motivation because the child actually has an, a knowledge that their parent is going to return. But what they also know, and this is the consciousness part, is that they're going away without me. There's someplace out there in the world and I'm not with them. There's where the big difference is. They're away from here and I want them to be with me. Another way to put it is the six-month-old can think about a situation, the one that they're in. But by the time you hit 18 months old, you can conjure up many situations at once. Mm -hmm. And so that six-month-old situation, when the parent leaves, they feel the parent leaving. The 18-month-old can imagine other situations called imagination. So that 18-month-old can now imagine something happening to the parent, the parent not coming back. Right. Or they can imagine the parents going to do something in the kitchen and it'll be right back. They can imagine all sorts of various scenarios. And the six-month-old doesn't really have that imagination. That 18-month-old can actually imagine I could be going with them. Sometimes I get in the car in my car seat and go with them. And of course, because they are 18 months old and probably don't have the language to say, they're going to say, why do I have to stay home? You might say, okay, this is all nice theoretical stuff I understand about brain development, but what has that got to do with the everyday parenting conflicts that I get into with my 15, 18, two-year-month-old and that two-year-old? I mean, that's the question. And it's interesting because they are closely related. In fact, they're not just closely related, they actually are causal. I mean, the fact that we have a big bang of consciousness is the reason that the child is going to have these tantrums. Whether it's a tantrum about something ridiculously small, like the color of their socks or the fact that it's Cheerios and not kicks. Part of it is that they're new to this consciousness. I have all these ideas. I have all these imagined scenarios and they're pulled in many different directions. So tantrums are absolutely very common at this age. And when they say the terrible twos, we know that it actually starts months earlier. It starts closer to 15 to 18 months old when a child really starts to get distressed over small things or seem to make demands of their parents that are completely and totally unreasonable. This isn't just a theoretical construct we've put together. We, we talk about the Big Bang Consciousness as a special episode of Parent Talk because it is the engine that drives most of the conflicts that children have with their parents, whether it be tantrum, discipline, sibling rivalry. And I think we also have to uh, be sympathetic to parents, our listeners, who sometimes are shocked by how this suddenly appears. They're very content six, nine, 12 month old suddenly is throwing tantrums. And again, the uh, one of the key features of the Big Bang of Consciousness is that it happens suddenly. There's a time in your child's life before which they are sort of unaware of alternatives or situations or imagination, however you want to put it. And then all of a sudden, they have their imagination. They're aware that the current situation isn't the one they want to be in. Tantrums are actually a good indicator that you've leapt across the Big Bang of Consciousness, that that bang has occurred. And a proof of that is I don't think I've ever seen someone before the Big Bang of Consciousness have a tantrum. So, you know, eight-month-olds get upset, but they're almost always, unless they're in pain, they're almost always resolvable by meeting some need. Tantrums are a sign that the awareness has exceeded the person's ability to manage the awareness. You know, they don't like the shoes that they're wearing, but they don't know what shoes they want to wear. And so they get upset about the current situation. They're aware it can be different. They don't know how to solve it. 
and the brain actually freezes, and that's a tantrum. But that, that freeze occurs, just as you said, Susan, because this whole thing of being aware of all these imagined scenarios overwhelms their mind. They can't manage it. So a tantrum's a sign that the brain has frozen because it can't resolve all the possibilities. You know, in this day and age, we can all relate to the fact that our computers sometimes act funky. And what do we all have to do? We just have to reboot them. And that's what we have to help children do. But the only way parents can do that is by not thinking of the child who becomes distressed because they won't put their shoes on, they don't want to put their shoes on. If they really go into a true tantrum, which is when you have to help them reboot, instead of thinking of a consequence to the tantrum, what we need to do is help that child regulate their own emotions and begin to reboot and understand that eventually their brain will become more used to seeing all these different scenarios and imagining these things. But they won't tantrum less unless the parent can help them self-regulate, calm down, and find an alternative. And that, I think, is really difficult for parents. And why is it hard? Because when your child is screaming and yelling about putting on a pair of shoes, it's very hard in that moment for a parent to say, my child's brain is like freezing. They can't really think this through logically. I need to help them get to a place where they can listen to me. They can begin to use their words if they have words. And we can begin to like redirect that energy into a more positive picture. Tantrums are sort of the hallmark of the onset of Big Bang of Consciousness. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how this plays out and some things we talk about in a lot of our podcasts, different episodes and parent talk. And one of the great examples is discipline, where the Big Bang of Consciousness plays such a big role. And if you think about it, my favorite word when it comes to discipline happens to be mischief. I actually think there's something glorious about the glint in the eye, you know, the child knowing that they're about to do something wrong and then looking back at you as they do it with a glint in their eye and then proceeding. And that, to me, is the definition of mischief. You can't be mischievous if you're unaware of other possibilities. So if you... That's true. I never thought of that. That's a great way to put that. I mean, think about it. Uh, A 12-month-old who's running around, let's say, is much less likely to grin back at you as they walk towards the wall outlet than an 18-month-old. And almost every 18-month-old will do that. We'll do something. It might not be the wall outlet. It might be, you know, throwing food on the floor. It might be going towards a street. In fact, if there's a rule, someone who's been through the big bang of consciousness is aware that they can break it. We've talked about this in our podcast specifically on discipline, but I think it might be a good time to bring it up again. Let's talk a little bit about the use of timeouts. And let me tell you something. I'd much rather have a parent use timeout than spank a child or yell at them. So, I mean, if the, if those are the two alternatives, I'm going with a timeout. But, yeah, spanking, let's just say, is out. O-U-T, out. Right. What I like to think about it is a cool-down space as opposed to a timeout. And what we will often tell parents, instead of you imposing, and, and believe me, this imposing like two minutes for two years and three minutes for three years, someone made that up. And someone with absolutely no scientific research. It's just it's just a convenient little mantra almost, you know, of what parents can do. Instead of the parent being in charge, what if after three minutes, that child is still churning inside, still hasn't rebooted, hasn't begun to self-regulate. It's a useless 
tool. Instead, if you can help a child go to a safe space, and by that I mean a place where if a child is really having a full-blown tantrum, they can't hurt themselves or hurt their sibling or hurt the wall. And the parent will say as the child begins to calm, when you feel calm inside, when you feel ready to talk about this, then you come out of your safe space and we can be together again. This gives the control to the child and nobody can regulate the child, but the child himself or herself. That's exactly why we talk about this whole idea of big bang of consciousness and repeat this over and over because the arrival of this sort of consciousness, awareness, other alternatives, other situations, imagination flummoxes children, right? The resolution of that is that they're not flummoxed by it. That can only be solved by the child. Mm -hmm. So if, if all this hubbub is because they're sort of overwhelmed by all this awareness, then the solution is for them to become not overwhelmed by all this awareness, which means you have to give them space to think about what's going on and to rethink things a bit and to calm down. What you said, Susan, is such a beautiful approach to how to give a child the chance to do that. And what happens if you do that over and over? Guess what? They learn to use this new power that we call consciousness. It never goes away. You know, we as adults struggle with consciousness all the time. We're always aware that, you know, our life could be better or that it is worse than we hoped it would be. And it drives a lot of feeling in people throughout their lives. So it's not as though your 18-month-old is going to solve this forever. No, it's an ongoing process. Yeah, it's a process, ongoing challenge. But once it first arrives and you see its arrival signal by tantrums, you can begin parenting by giving them the space to find ways to manage the contradictions and the frustrations they have in their mind. You know, I've known children whose parents use this concept of a safe place. I've seen these kids as young as four and five look to their parents and say, I need a break. And the child walks out of the room and takes a break begins to do whatever they need that they've learned by themselves or with the help of their parent to get themselves calmer. And then they come back. And I have had parents come back to me to tell me that, that this, yes, you don't see this in the 18 month old, but you plant those seeds so that you can get the full crop, so to speak, you know, a couple of years later, and you don't have to wait till they're 18. You'd be amazed at four five and six year olds who are able to self-regulate their emotions and really turn it around themselves. Because what happens when parents, either they're so strict and they're just stamping out tantrums, those children may not tantrum, but they also don't grow in any sort of way that they learn how to get in touch with their emotions and how to self-regulate their emotions. And parents who are give in to tantrums, and believe me, there are a lot of parents who do, I would hesitate to say, Arthur, that both you and I with having three children, once in a while we gave in to a tantrum because we're human. <laughs> For sure. And and that's going to happen. But I mean, a parent that routinely would give into a tantrum will have a child who's still having tantrums at five, six, and seven. Oh, yes. Because that's what they've learned. So it's important to understand where the tantrums are coming, but that doesn't mean that you just let it go. There are some things you can do to support your child. Think about it. They're making you uncomfortable, but you can believe me, that child feels pretty uncomfortable himself. So this whole thing with the emergence of this type of consciousness also defines modern toilet training, or what we call toilet mastery. And those who uh, follow us on Parent Talk know that we have several episodes on toilet mastery. But think about it. There are two ways to approach toilet mastery through history. One was to train babies before they became 
conscious in the way we're talking about consciousness. And our current approach was to introduce them to the use of toilet after they're fully conscious. So in the nine-month-old before the Big Bang of Consciousness, it is toilet training. The baby has no idea what a toilet is, and you're actually training them to use it. No one knows how to, well, we don't know how to do that anymore. Most Americans don't, have no idea how to do that anymore. There are plenty of cultures that still do it around the world, but we in the United States don't know. Fast forward now to today, and the average age of toilet mastery is over age three in the United States and going up. And you can be sure that the toilet is no longer the issue once you hit age two and a half, three, four years old. Everyone in that age group knows what a toilet is. As we've discussed in our other podcast, the core of the issue at this point becomes a question of who's going to do the cleanup. And guess what the child who's three years old knows when you talk to them about the toilet. They're aware in their imagination. They can imagine what it's like if they take over cleanup and they don't like it. <laughs> They've got a good gig. Mom, dad do the cleanup. And when they start time out of the toilet, they can imagine that consciousness allows them to imagine how awful it'll be if they have to mess around with it and they don't use the toilet. And that's why they don't use the toilet. So again, the big bang of consciousness defines a conflict so common in uh, childhood. I'd like to just take that a little step further because what happens when a child, let's say, you know, refuses to use the toilet and at three, you're right. They know perfectly well what a toilet is for. <laughs> they see everybody around them using it, et cetera. But what happens because of the big bang of consciousness, a child can actually understand the impact that their behavior has on others. So that when parents become very stressed out about a child who's not using the toilet, that child now has another arrow in their quiver, you might say. Not only do I not want to clean up, but I know how to get to my parents. I'm like a puppeteer pulling their strings. I want to see mom and dad yell at each other because it very likely, like we talked about in a prior podcast about parenting differences, one parent says, you know, you have got to clean up. Another one wants to spank whatever, you know, they're having different ideas or they can get the whole family involved. I've known families, and this is in more than one family, where a much older child, like a six or seven-year-old, is still not having a bowel movement in the toilet, and they would hold it in for two or three days. And when that child would announce, I have to have a BM, the whole family, and I mean siblings included, would stop and run around and get the child to pull up and do whatever it was. And can you imagine that even that older child who might be embarrassed about the fact that they're still using a pull-up for a bowel movement, can you imagine the power that that child feels that the whole family is getting involved? Even in a much smaller scale, younger children will really understand because of the consciousness that their behaviors really impact how their parents or even their siblings will behave. You had twins. Consciousness comes into sibling rivalry as well. For sure. And, you know, you think about the exertion of power. You know, everyone talks about power in American politics. Well, there's nothing more powerful than a two-year-old who knows the parents are begging them to use a toilet. <laughs> and all they have to do to exert their power is poop in their pants. One poop in the pants and everything's topsy-turvy. Yeah, that's a pretty easy way to get power, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's irresistible. So yes, sibling rivalry is impossible without at least one of the siblings having consciousness. So if you have, let's say, six-month-old twins, there's no rivalry because each one is in their own little space. They're unaware of how the other could change their situation. They know there's another person there that they're very much in love with, but 
they don't see the other person as a threat. So to visualize a threat from someone else, time with parents, it could be a toy, it could be a project that the other person's tearing down. You have to be aware of the possibility that the other person is a, is a threat. And again, that's an example where the Big Bang of Consciousness helps really define how a very common conflict in, in childhood comes to be. It really all comes down to understanding that all of these things really only come about because of the Big Bang of Consciousness. So what we'd like parents to be is aware that this is like the motivation. This is behind what's going on when your child is, what parents like to say, melting down about something. And in our other podcast, we give very specific guidelines on how do you support a child during this time without stamping down that need for them to learn how to express and regulate their emotions. It's really about learning how to set the boundaries and still respecting the child's personhood. So as, as we wrap up today, we want to give our parenting tip as we do for each episode. And I, I think what we want to do is say a lot of people approach this big bang of consciousness with dread. In fact, the common phrase for it is terrible twos. But we think it's actually one of the glories of parenting. Sure, it's one of our greatest challenges. But how glorious that at about 18 months of age or so, parenting is increasingly driven by your child's own imagination, their struggle to manage imagining a situation being not so good or possibly better. So encouraging this great power, while at the same time giving your child boundaries to play out their ideas, is one of the great experiences and approaches to parenting. Thanks, Arthur, and I can't wait to see you next time. Bye-bye. Wonderful, Susan. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.